the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life. I have the privilege of doing this program every day, Monday through Friday at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. It is a show dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your questions, Bible questions, church questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. Whatever's on your heart, all you need to do is to provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car on this beautiful and I'm told very warm day out there, um, all you have to, the best, safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Appreciate you tuning in. Let's get to some questions that have been sent in. Our first one comes from our mobile app anonymously. Uh, the question is, will you still have consequences for sins you've repented of? I used to struggle with sexual sin, but I've been free from it for a few years. Will there still be consequences in a future marriage because of that? Uh, anonymous, it depends what you mean by consequences. You know, w- once we've committed sexual sin, and I think this is one of the things that we, we take so lightly because sex is everywhere and the temptations are there and we've got access to pornography uh, on the phones that we carry around. Uh, and there are always going to be consequences of it. The Apostle Paul says that when a man sins sexually, he sins against his own body. Prior to that, he says all other sins a man commits are outside his body. And there's a, a degree of, of access that we're giving the enemy when we sin sexually. The the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when we drag the Holy Spirit using our body uh, through sexual immorality, um, we're giving the devil uh, an opportunity to really wreak havoc. So the consequences, if you mean, will the devil bring that up? Will he push those buttons? Uh, The answer to that question is yes. Uh, You really need to be... um, on guard against the lies of the enemy. Uh, you know you've been um, forgiven. You've been free from it for a few years. So when the devil pushes those temptation buttons or tries to bring those other things back to mind or heart, um, you've got to remember that, that running to Jesus, fighting the battle, is the only really important thing at that time. You've got to, you've got to fight. I think one of the things that we wish we wouldn't have to do is fight spiritual battles, but um, we have to fight them. We don't have a choice. That's why Paul says to put on the full armor of God. And so that's what you've done. Now, if you're thinking about consequences of sexual sin uh, that might bother you in the future, uh, sexually transmitted disease, um, running into somebody um, socially that that maybe you've had a, a sexual relationship with, um, th- those are just 
consequences, their natural outflowings of the bad things that we do, the bad choices that we make. Now, I don't know what other kind of consequences you might be speaking about, but none of those things, Anonymous, have to impact nor affect, even for a moment, your relationship, your physical relationship with your future wife. You know, once once you meet that woman and once you've, uh, you know, handled with purity the dating process and you've committed your bodies to the Lord, um, then then there's nothing else that you need to worry about in that sense. Um, old memories, yes. Um, sexually transmitted diseases, yes. Uh, but the bond between a husband and wife that's been consecrated to the Lord uh, doesn't have to be affected at all. Be very, very careful. Paul says um, the marriage bed is to be kept pure. It's to be honored by all, but it's also to be kept pure. So if you're doing that, then you're closing those doors. For everybody out there, not just the person who signed uh, or who sent this question in, um, consecrating our lives, our bodies physically to the Lord after having been guilty, especially of sexual sin, is really the only way that we're going to be able to fight the enemy of our souls. Again, he's not going to give up. He's going to keep pushing those buttons. He's going to keep bringing temptation. However, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man, and God is faithful. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And so you don't have to give in to the temptation. So honor the Lord with your body personally and honor the Lord in the marriage bed as well. One other thought here, very, very quickly, Anonymous. Um, We take sexual sin so lightly in our church culture because it's everywhere. We take sexual sin so lightly um, that we really don't understand um, the, the gravity of that sin. And until we, all of us as believers, will agree with God, that all sex outside of marriage is sin, period. All sex. Um, and, and today, unfortunately, I have to say marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, also, all other sex is sin, and, and we have no choice but to agree with God on that issue. And then we've got to engage the fight. We've got to keep our vessels pure so that the Lord can use us and bless any future relationship that we might have. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Let's go to Alan on line one from San Antonio. Alan, thank you for the call. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you? Hi, Alan. How are you doing? God bless you. Glad you're having a good afternoon. You said it was a beautiful day. It's 82 outside, I'm told. That's perfect. (laughs) I'm told. I'm like you. I'm inside, so I hadn't really felt it yet. But Mm -hmm. I'm glad you gave me a good report on that. Um, Good. I was going to ask you a question, um, kind of trying to try to ask it. Um, but you know how the Bible says in the Old Testament that if a father uh, is a father is guilty of doing bad things, uh, of of sinning, uh, the son or the, the the offspring will not be guilty of it, uh, mm-hmm. or they won't be. Uh, punished for it. Mm-hmm. I think it's an SXL or I've read it in various places of the Old Testament. And yes. um, so what I'm what I'm encountering is that I have the same uh, health. I have a lot of the same health problems my dad had. And uh, he wasn't a Christian at all until the very end. And so, but I'm finding out that I have a lot of the same medical problems he had. So yeah. that's my question. Um Related to the Bible, where it says that the children aren't responsible for the parents' uh, sins, and that so you get these hereditary diseases from the parents that go down the lines, and so I don't understand that. Okay, I, I can help you with that, Ellen. Thank you very, very much, and just know we're praying for you, dear brother. We want you to to get well, and we'll not stop praying. Hey, a couple of things. One, physical illness is not a result of sin. Now, I just talked about sexually transmitted disease. We can we can have diseases that are a product of our sin, but but the hereditary diseases or the illnesses, the the similarities, our DNA. DNA is a wonderful thing sometimes, and it's a horrible thing sometimes. 
Uh, but none of that, Alan, is a result of, of sinning against God. Um, we live in a fallen world. Our bodies are, are outwardly, we're, we're told in the Bible, we're wasting away. Um, and we inherit certain traits from our parents, just like we inherit our, some looks. We inherit our personalities, uh, unfortunately or fortunately. Uh, we also inherit um, some of the same physical ailments. That's why uh, when you are getting a physical, they'll say, do you have, are your parents still living? Uh, but none of that has anything to do with God. That's just a natural progression of the human body, and that's passed on. What the sons of the fathers will not be, or I'm sorry, the sons will not be punished for the sins of their fathers refers to the judgment of God. And please remember, and everybody in this audience remember, uh, in spite of what false teachers may have told you, um, physical illness or disease, hereditary diseases, are not responsible or are not caused by sin. So that's what he's talking about. God's judgment will not follow the sons because their father sinned. Um, he says, uh, he, he, in Ezekiel, he says, I hate hearing that. I don't want to hear it again. Um, each man will die or be punished for his own sins. But physically, Alan, your hereditary diseases, the DNA that's been passed to you from your parents has nothing to do with the judgment of God. Uh, it really is uh, just sort of the luck, good or bad, of the draw. Um, my dad, I, I've I've enjoyed really, really good health, uh, and I'm I've been abundantly blessed by it. Uh, my dad, uh, he died from a fall, but he was very healthy when he fell, and and he lived to be 84 and would have lived to be uh, a lot older than that. So these kinds of things aren't passed from father to son as a judgment of God, and that's what's referred to in those Old Testament scriptures. You remember in uh, uh, the Gospel of John, uh, when the man who was born blind, um, his disciples asked him, well, well, whose fault was it? Was Did he sin or did his parents sin? Um, and, and that's why he's blind. We have a tendency to think those things. God is punishing. God does not use a physical ailment to judge or to punish. Now, one caveat here, Alan. There are times when God will use physical ailments to get our attention when we're not paying attention to him. When we're doing things that are bad, God will slow us down. That's one of the reasons every time I get sick or or yeah, not so much anymore, but I used to, I, I just say, okay, Lord, are you trying to show me something? The answer is no, not, not normally. But God will not afflict us especially with physical illness, unless, of course, he's trying to get our attention. And uh, I actually know somebody who uh, who believes with all their heart that that's exactly what happened to them. And they know that they were guilty. They know that God had tried on many other occasions to get their attention, and they simply weren't listening. I think the moral of the story, Ellen, is that we need to listen to God. But in your case, please rest easy, dear brother. This isn't at all... Um, um, God punishing you for your father who wasn't a Christian since. And when you were born again, the old is gone, the new has come. And unfortunately, these old bodies wear out, uh, but a brand new body awaits each and every one of us when the time comes. Thanks, Alan. Good to hear from you again. I appreciate it very, very much. Here's a question from Ken. He says, I go to a church that allows people to speak in tongues all at the same time. Uh, should I find another church? Uh, Ken, I don't know whether you've been listening to me on the program or not, but uh, the answer is yes, you should. That is an out-of-control church. It's a church that demonstrates through their practice that they really care nothing about the order or orderly worship prescribed in the Bible. Uh, God gives gifts. He's the one that has the, the, the right, the only one who has the right to monitor the use of those gifts, and he gives us the guidelines for them. And if we're going to try to use gifts that God has given us in a way that is in violation of the Word of God, then we're at a church that's completely out of control. So uh, I would I would find another church. 
That's my counsel there. Let's go to Ruben from Seguin on line one. Ruben, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yeah, Lewis and Pastor Ron, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Ruben. Thank you. That's good. That's good. I have a question here. Uh, uh, as as I as I recoup and and uh, just just sit down and meditate. Um, and Habakkuk, I think that's how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a real short book. Um, minor prophet. Um, uh, verse chapter one, pretty much the entire chapter. I don't want to read it, and um, I mean, pretty much it just to me. I just the question is, to whom is Habakkuk referring to? And the oracle. Every time I see that word oracle, and the way that I've heard it used is like a prophet. Uh, someone who knows or someone who sees the future or something. So Habakkuk proceeds to say, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Then he goes on. He talks about their lives. He talks about the horses. He talks about the prosperity. So, like, my question is twofold. Number one, what is an oracle in this instance and to whom is he talking to? Well, Reuben, an oracle is simply a, a word that comes from the Lord. Um, it, it, prophets are sometimes called oracles or seers, and uh, that Habakkuk is 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 identified as a prophet, a true prophet of God. In the very first verse, uh, makes it clear that an oracle is a, a word from God that is going to be delivered to the people. Now, obviously, this book is about judgment. God is going to use people that are far more wicked than the Israelites who are sinning, and He's going to use them to judge others. And Habakkuk, and not. Uh, Habakkuk alone, but other prophets were were troubled by that. Jonah, we know, was troubled by that. But uh, it's an oracle. He's speaking to uh, the people of God who haven't listened. And and now he's um, um, simply, this is the Lord, putting words in the prophet Habakkuk's mouth. And here's what he wants to know. How how long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? And he's speaking here on behalf of those in Israel who are still just. He's speaking on behalf of those who, who want to serve the Lord, but they see nothing but all of this wickedness around them. I love verse 3. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. You know, what's interesting, Reuben, about this particular book is this is precisely what many of us who love the Lord are, are, are crying out all the time. How long, oh God? I mean, how much worse can things get? The difference between this and and when we cry out is uh, we know that this was uh, a word from God that Habakkuk received. Um, you know, most of us, we just want to escape the, the, the weirdness around us. We want to escape all of the injustice and the pain. And we complain. And this is, this is a complaint. And God is simply, through the prophet Habakkuk, he is simply demonstrating that this is the cry from the heart of those who are also vexed in their hearts and in their spirits by all of the wickedness around them. Keep reading this one, um, um, Reuben. This is a, a, a very timely, uh, especially for the time and period that we live in, this is a very timely prophet. And Habakkuk had the same questions that you and I have. That's what makes this such a valuable book and uh, so wonderful to teach. Good question. Thank you very, very much. And Reuben, I'm always blessed by the fact that you are reading your Bible. Always blessed. Here is a question from, let me see if I got it here. From Raul, from our email inbox. Uh, Pastor in the Bible says we battle dark spirits and principalities of the world. There's 
so much information about demons. What is a true demon? Uh, will we see these dark spirits in our Christian walk? I've been part of a demon. Uh, I have been a part of a demon who held me down and did not allow me to speak. And all I did was yell out, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And the demon went away. I was basically in a coma, but knew what was going on. Can you provide your biblical and personal insight if that has ever happened to you? Um, Raul, a couple things. I'll, I'll talk about the demons in in, uh, in some detail in a moment. Um, but, but I'm always weary. These are hard things. When something... Uh, has happened to you in your personal experience, and then somebody is like me is going to come along and say, "Well, that probably wasn't real." We've got to understand uh, in the Word of God that that these demons cannot physically afflict us without direct permission from God. We know that's true. Um, um, the devil had permission to attack Job physically. God is the one who put the limits on the devil. Uh, the devil had permission to attack the apostle Paul, a messenger from Satan. Did. Uh, we know that from Second Corinthians chapter 12, uh, when Paul asked that that thorn in the flesh be taken from him, but 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 it served a purpose for God. So God allowed the messenger from Satan, who was a demon, to do that. Now, um, something that we need to understand, uh, yelling the name Jesus has no value at all if our hearts aren't right with God. Now, that's what leads me to think. When you say I was basically in a coma, you don't explain what that means. Either you were in a coma or you weren't. And if you were in a coma, I'm certain that these this this experience you had was uh, similar to a nightmare. Uh, it may have been a direct attack by the enemy. There are times, and I don't want to give the impression that I'm super spiritual or anything, but there are times when I am attacked in my nightmares uh, by the enemy. Now, not physically. Now, he can make it feel physical. Um, we, we go through a lot of junk. But uh, um, when I wake up, I remember, no, God has him on a leash. He can't do anything to me without the permission of God. And probably this was your subconscious. If you were in a coma, probably this was your subconscious. Your mind, even in a coma, is very active and reactive. And these kind of things, and, and uh, especially uh, when, when we Christians who have experienced spiritual warfare like this, um, it, it would not be at all unusual to see these king things come up. All of that to say that this was probably not a physical attack and it wasn't a demon who was attacking you any in any other way other than maybe the enemy who is, is trying to impact your nightmares or your dreams or in this case, if it was a coma, your subconscious. Very, very important you understand that. God is the one who protects us. Now, you're right, the Bible says we battle spirits and principalities of this world. That's why we need to put on the full armor of God. And we have a lot of information about demons, but there's a lot of information that we don't have. A demon is a fallen angel. One-third of the angels were swept away in the deception of Lucifer, who is now Satan or the devil, and one-third of them were swept away in that process. And they are, it's their job. You know, people say, well, I don't want the devil to bug me. Well, it's his job. That's what he does. And he's really good, and he's really persistent. Peter says he actually prowls around. It's sort of a, a sneaky-looking prowl, and he's looking for opportunities to get in. That's why uh, we talk often about closing all the doors, keeping your defenses up, staying close to Jesus. Uh, when the enemy is looking for an opportunity to destroy me, I don't want to give him that chance. And um, Raul, what happens if we walk away from the Lord or we engage in sinful behavior, uh, if we're not repentant for the things that we do do wrong and, and uh, asking God for forgiveness, uh, if we're not in right relationship, then the enemy is going to do anything he can. I like to use the phrase that he huffs and puffs and tries to blow our house down. Again, we remember God is the one who is in control. So um, that battle will go on until we're with Jesus. Now, let me give you one other piece of counsel. The way I have determined to fight the devil, I don't actually go through the, the armor of God um, one by one every day. But what I do is I run into the presence of Jesus first thing in the morning, and I want to stay there all day, every day. 
Because when the devil's looking for an opportunity to, to, to come at me, I want him to find me so close to Jesus that there is no opportunity. And you see, then it's Jesus who actually fights the battle. And in so many charismatic churches, out-of-control churches, it's like, well, I plead the blood, or I, I yelled Jesus. And while that may have happened in your dream, uh, the, the reality is, uh, we know this from the seven sons of Siva in the book of Acts, um, they, they knew about Paul's Jesus. Um, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. They didn't come out. Paul, I know, and Jesus, of course, I know. And what happened? They beat them. They went away running, running away bloody and naked. So there's no value in shouting anything. Jesus is just a name if, in fact, you're not in fellowship with the Lord. In other words, we can't do things our way and expect that Jesus is going to be there to fight the enemy for it, with us. That's not going to happen. So, Raul, probably what you had while you were in a coma was... Um, a subconscious experience similar to a nightmare. Uh, you don't say how long you're in the coma, but it's certainly not a physical attack of the enemy. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the show. 340-9585. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our program 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR here is an anonymous question from our email inbox uh, he or she says, I have a question about the order of leadership in a church. I was in the military, so I'm familiar with the chain of command. When I read the Bible, uh, it seems as if there's the same concept of leadership in the church. But my question is, what is the order to that today? Are the elders in charge and then pastors second? Or is the senior pastor in charge and then the elders and other pastors? Could you please break down the order of leadership in the church? Um, anonymous biblically, and I'm going to, I'll start there. Biblically, um, New Testament churches are to be run by pastors. God gives a vision to a man. God brings other men and women around him uh, and gives them gifts to be used. But it is to be used under the direction of their spiritual leaders. When the Apostle Paul, um, writing uh, to, to the churches that he founded, established elders. Now, it, biblically, the word elders or overseers, depending on the translation that you read, refers to the role of the pastor. Um, it's not elders plural. There's a pastor and plural number of elders. Uh, that's not what he means. The overseers are the man that God has given stewardship of that church, uh, um, and, and he's the one who's responsible to the Lord. So biblically, that is the God-ordained method. Now, there are people who read the New Testament incorrectly, and they'll say, no, elders, plural, are supposed to run the church. And then they'll basically make the, the the pastor that they hire a hireling, and the elders are the ones who sort of give the marching orders. That is to misunderstand completely uh, the biblical concept of leadership in a church. Uh, here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, and, and Calvary Chapel is a pastor-led church. Uh, I started this church 27-some-odd years ago. And uh, God gave uh, some vision for us, uh, to me, some direction. Uh, he told me what to do. He's done all of the work. He's brought wonderful men uh, and women around me. Uh, so the, the, the leadership here is from the top down. And when I say from the top down, that's not me exalting myself or me thinking I'm more important. I'm just the man that's going to stand before God and give account of my stewardship of Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. I'm not going to give account of, of anybody else's stewardship, just mine. Now, the problem when you get into an elder-run church or there's another form of government that's very uh, well-known here in, in the South, 
with Baptist Southern Baptist Convention, it's it's a congregational church, and the congregation votes on things, and that's an absolute disaster. Um, so uh, leadership in the church is God gives direction to a senior pastor, and I don't even like the term senior. I guess it fits for me because I'm old, but but um, it, it's just the the under shepherd because Jesus, of course, is the true shepherd of the church. And the higher I go on that list, I, I'm I'm the under shepherd, but I'm accountable to Jesus. And so there's there's a greater responsibility and greater accountability to me to be sure that Jesus is the one that runs the church. Now, here's the reason that other people embrace different styles of government. They don't like the idea that all of the power or the authority is given to one person. And they're right in some cases. It sets people up to become egomaniacs or control freaks, especially in our church culture where megachurch pastors become stars. Believe me, I'm not in anybody's star. But but we have these celebrities and rock stars, they're even called. And, um, and so they become oppressive. They become controlling. Uh, and nobody can approach them uh, when they're in sin. Now... The, the elders that we have now, the, the, one of the reasons in this country that we have elders uh, is, is because we've got to satisfy the legal requirements for incorporation. So there has to be officers in the church. And in our, our case, we have uh, elders who I have appointed uh, with the approval of the church. And by that, I mean uh, anybody that when I'm going to appoint an elder, um, anybody can come say, we can't appoint him. The guy's got this going on in his life or he's full of sin. Uh, we're we're to, to, to appoint people who are uh, obviously, uh, I'll, I'll steal from Acts chapter 6, full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit. And the truth is, if I was caught with sin, these men would hold me accountable. The fact that I am the leader of a church doesn't, of the church, doesn't make me... Um, so far above them that they can't approach me and insist on biblical and godly leadership. So that's the the idea. So the senior pastor's the leader. Vision goes down in other churches where they have different forms of government, whether it's congregational or elder-run or elder-led, whatever it's called, uh, in different churches. Uh, then they're going to have that form of leadership that I think, frankly, is not consistent with what uh, with the biblical model that God has given us uh, in both the Old Testament in a picture form or a type form, but in the New Testament very specifically. So when he says, Paul says, appoint elders, he's talking to Timothy or Titus, appoint elders. He's not saying... Um, get a pastor and then appoint elders to control that pastor. What he's saying is those elders or overseers are the men that we now call pastors. That's just sort of the the evolution of the language uh, that has gone down to time. So uh, I hope that makes sure it makes sense. We're to submit to our leaders. Obviously, we can't submit to them if they're asking you to do ungodly things or if they're asking you to overlook sin. And again, I want to repeat that the biggest problem with the top-down form of leadership in our country is that there's nobody to hold a pastor accountable. And we who are pastors have to be very careful um, not to put ourselves in a position where we're not accountable to anybody. One day I'm going to stand before the Lord and uh, so will my elders, and their job is to keep me accountable uh, for the things I say, for the vision, for the type of life that I live. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of that is missing in our current church culture. So, um, Anonymous, I hope that makes sense to you. The elders um, are not in charge in our church, and again, this is my frame of reverence. Uh, I have a full staff of pastors, and I give them great authority. Uh, it's important that, that, that the people recognize that God has called them to be pastors and they submit to their authority. But it's not an oppressive authority, do this or else kind of authority. It's not even the kind of authority in the world or in the military, top down. Uh, it's it's the kind of authority that says, come on, we're in this together. Let's walk together, following the Lord and walking together in unity. I hope that makes sense and I hope I didn't just mumble too much. Uh, but that's a that's a 
difficult question because there are different types of leadership in the church. Whatever the Bible says is the one we ought to find. So I hope that makes sense. Uh, Here's a related question from Veronica. Uh, House churches with a question mark. That's all she says. Your thoughts, please. Uh, Veronica, I'm not a fan of house churches. I know that the Bible, uh, that the church started with house churches. Um, In the first century church, people got saved. And as the gospel spread, they met in homes. I realize that. But that's not a biblical model. That was a cultural model. Um, sort of survival mode. They didn't have any place else to go. In many places, uh, being a Christian publicly uh, was 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 very risky. It was dangerous. So they met in houses. Uh, our church, Calvary Chapel San Antonio, started in a house, our apartment. And uh, and and you know, at some point, you get to the place where too many people are coming. You can't fit in a an apartment or a house, so you go find a building. And that's what happened. Now, the problem I have with house churches is twofold. Usually, they're small groups by definition. And there is always a charismatic or aggressive, loud person who controls the group. And especially if the facilitator or the leader of that house church uh, is like Timothy, you know, a little timid. Timothy was. Then there's always going to be somebody who seizes on that weakness and 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 sort of tries to control the group, and it's easy to do in a small group. Another thing that I don't like about house churches is a lot of the people are there because they don't want to be under authority, and it's really important, Veronica, learn to be under authority because until you do, God can never entrust you with authority. And so we've got to learn to be under authority. We've got to come alongside people and serve them. Every one of my pastors, every one of my elders over our 27 and a half years here, every one of them has come up through the ranks. Nobody started out. Nobody was hired here as a pastor from out of town. Uh, they started through the group. It made sure that, that God was calling them. That calling was obvious to those of us who were in charge. Uh, the rest of us who are here on staff, uh, and then we could get together and recognize the work that God was doing. And and just too often in a, in a house church, people don't want to be under authority, so it's just more casual to go to a house. Um, it can be great Bible teaching there, uh, but, but remember, serving, serving others, and learning to submit to authority are really important elements. One other thing. A lot of people go to house churches today because they don't want to give. And that's a real problem because that shows uh, the condition, the true condition of their heart. So, Veronica, not a big fan. I realize that in this day and age there are people who disagree with me. Um, but that's um, the, the practical outworking of house churches as I've experienced them uh, here. Hope that helps. Matthew says, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus commanded his disciples to heal the sick, to cast out demons and raise the dead. Are we supposed to be doing that today? Um, Matthew, the answer is no. In the Gospels, Jesus sent them out two by two, and he gave them power. It wasn't his power. Now, it was recently that I saw an episode of The Chosen that had a really good uh, visual portrayal of this. Jesus said, I'm giving you my authority, so go out and do these things. And, and was they're saying, well, how are we going to do this? We've never done this before. And Jesus didn't answer all their questions. He just said, go out, be obedient. And he lent them power. And, and the word power there is not the dunamis or the, the, the supernatural power of God. It's the, uh, the, the Greek word is exousia, and it's the, the right or the authority to do these things. So the first time the disciples, and remember, they went out two by two, the first time those disciples went out and encountered a sick person or encountered a demon-possessed person, um, you know, they'd be naturally a little bit nervous, but, but they'd have to remember that this is the authority that Jesus gave me. I'll tell you one other thing. You remember when Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew. He came down. And he and Peter, James, and John saw that uh, there was a group of, of Jewish leaders, um, uh, exorcists, um, and they were arguing with the nine disciples because there was a demon, a, a demon-possessed boy, and they couldn't cast the demon out. 
Well, the reason they couldn't cast the demon out is because Jesus hadn't given them authority for that mission. So, no, we're not supposed to be doing this. Now, that doesn't mean we have to be afraid to pray for the sick. It doesn't mean that we need to be afraid if and when we we encounter demon-possessed people. And most uh, of, uh, I shouldn't say most, I almost said most of us have. Many of us have have encountered demon-possessed people. Um, uh, But but we don't have to be afraid of those demons. Um, And certainly we, we don't cause the dead to be raised. So, no, we're not supposed to be doing that today. That was a specific mission given to the disciples. And in that particular mission, they came back rejoicing because even the demons were subject to their name. And and Jesus sort of rebuked them, said, no, rejoice rather that your name is written in the book of life. So, uh, no, we're not supposed to be doing those things. As I I mentioned, we do not have to be afraid of praying for the sick or encountering demon-possessed people, but we're not going to raise the dead. So, uh, no, we're not supposed to be doing that. It was a one-time only thing. And as evidence of that, you know, after Jesus was was resurrected, and the book of Acts begins, uh, there were occasions when the Holy Spirit empowered them to do some of these things. Um, Peter raised a little girl from the dead, just like Jesus did. Um, uh, they, they cast out demons uh, in the book of Acts. Um, and, and, of course, they healed many of the sick, not all of them, but there were many times when they didn't do any of those things. So they were walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, and that the, the Spirit of God was then giving them fresh power to do these things. Good question, Matthew. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's an interesting question from Adam. William Lane Craig is an old earth believer. He's pretty effective in presenting his case. I love listening to him. Do you recommend him? Uh, I don't really, uh, Adam. I, I think I just think personally it's impossible to have an effective Christian walk if you do not believe the Bible is literal. Um, William Lane Craig is smart. In, in fact, he's brilliant. Um, uh, I've seen him do a question and answer shows, not like this one on the radio, but but I've seen him in auditoriums and stuff. And he's, he's a wonderful advocate for the Lord, and there's no doubt he is a believer. But the minute you start saying Genesis didn't really happen the way Genesis said, you make Jesus out to be a liar. And I think sometimes being really, really smart can be hard because he's around other smart people and they're going to be approaching him with, the, well, do you really believe science is proven? And I think what William Lane Craig has done is made a lot of concessions to science that, that much of it is science fiction. That's my phraseology. It's just not true. Science begins with the supposition that there is no God. So they're looking for alternative ways, and I think William Lane Craig, among others, is an advocate of of that position. So I don't think he is effective at all in presenting his case. Uh, he's very general. Well, you know, science has clearly demonstrated that the Earth is millions or billions of years old. Um, and, and that's simply not true. It's simply not true. It is a prevailing theory. Um, um, William Lane Craig is, um, um, I, I, I think, a big banger. Um, he would deny that Adam and Eve were the first two people on the earth. When you do that, you're really in dangerous place because Jesus himself, Jesus himself affirmed Adam and Eve as the first two people on the earth. Jesus affirmed Noah. Jesus affirmed Jonah. And here's one of those times when even the silly things like Jonah, oh, you really believe a man could be swallowed by a a fish? Well, the answer is God said it, so yeah, he could do it. And I think it's our view of the Bible that makes sense. William Lane Craig is effective, I think, in defending our faith uh, outside of this one area. I think he's very effective. Certainly he's going to be in heaven, but... um, I cannot recommend him uh, any more than I'd recommend anybody else who said that um, Jesus is a liar. And, and, and while he would never say that himself, uh, he will ascribe sort of a, an allegory um, uh, effect to, to Genesis. And that's simply not true. 
the reality is if we if the eleven first eleven chapters of Genesis aren't literally true as written, then we lose every major doctrine of the New Testament church. Every major doctrine falls apart. So no, I don't recommend him uh, at all. He's entertaining, and I, I, I've listened to him in the past, and um, but I don't recommend him. Sean says, how do you deal with those times when the life just seems too hard? Sean had a question similar to this yesterday. I think it was a question from Iris yesterday. Um, the, the, the way you deal with those times is you tuck in behind Jesus and get as close as you can. I think sometimes, not sometimes, I think most of the time, we get closer to the hard things than we are to Jesus. And and when that happens, we're not going to be able to hear from the Lord. We're not going to be able to see clearly uh, when we open his word. Um, I think we need not to be surprised. Peter and James both say basically the same thing. Don't be surprised when these trials come upon you as though something strange or difficult was happening to you. We should expect these things. And we should be prepared for these things. I say often, uh, and, and people get frustrated with me when I do, but... But, but I, I maintain that God will prepare us for everything if we just give him the opportunity to do it. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to sail right through it. It doesn't mean we're not going to be afraid. It doesn't mean we're not going to be overwhelmed. But if we're prepared for these difficult times, these really hard things, then we run to Jesus when they happen. You know, we don't punch above our weight. By that I mean we don't try to handle something on our own. And that's another flaw among many Christians. We, we go through things alone, Sean, when we don't have to. So here's what I tell people all the time. When you're going through something really difficult, you've got to really be committed to fighting to be in the Word. You've got to be really committed to maintain a prayer relationship with the Lord. And you've got to be committed to being in the fellowship of believers. Do not forsake the assembling together of the saints. And by the way, that warning written in the book of Hebrews, it's chapter 10, that warning was written to a church that was experiencing those times when life just seems too hard. Persecution was constant. It didn't seem like it was going to go away, and people were drifting away. And the book is filled with with a series of warnings about that very thing. And, And toward the end of the book, he says, Do not forsake the assembling together of the saints. Use your gifts. Serve other people. And in doing that, the Spirit of God will refocus your, your, your heart and your mind and your efforts on serving the people of God. And when you're serving the people of God and the power of the Holy Spirit is flowing through you, the reality is that you just won't be that consumed by those really hard things. So, Sean, examine your heart. If there's sin that needs to be repented of, repent and then by faith, accept God's forgiveness and his, his empowering by his spirit. And then stay so close to Jesus that those hard times, well, they just don't seem so hard. We know they are. But in the presence of Jesus, you'll be focused on him. Hope that makes sense to you. Patricia says... Pastor Ron, is there any hope of racial peace or reconciliation in our nation? I am losing hope. Um, Patricia, there's, there's no hope for peace, racial or otherwise, without the Prince of Peace. So don't, your hopes can't be in a secular world coming together to have a coke around a campfire. You just can't put your hope there. So here's God's response to you, Patricia. You be an instrument of reconciliation. You be somebody that God can use to reach out to anybody and everybody. I made a mention on the program yesterday of our church, Uh, Patricia. Our church here is the most diverse church that I've ever seen. Um, Our church looks like our city. Um, Again, we have more African Americans as a percentage than our city does as a percentage. Um, but but other than that, uh, you know, I, I tell our church all the time, we're, ju- we're just all of us. We're a bunch of mutts who love Jesus. And the racial divide falls apart. 
So there's no hope for peace in anybody's life, racial or otherwise, apart from surrendering to Jesus Christ. And we got to be okay with that. we got to understand that that's the case. So your hope is in the wrong thing. There's always going to be prejudice. There's always going to be hatred. There's always going to be division, people trying to destroy others. There's always going to be war. Jesus said there will always be poverty. So where's our hope? Our hope is in Christ. Patricia, he's coming back soon, and he's going to take those of us who are his to be with him where he is. And then he's going to judge the world, and then when we come back, then the world will be as we want it to be then the world will be as we want it to be. But to have an idea that that's going to happen before, to, to, to expect that suddenly people who don't want anything to do with, with our Jesus are going to act like him, or they're going to have this epiphany that, hey, can't we all just get along? I don't know how old you are, Patricia, but Rodney King was famous for uh, the press after he was beaten terribly, and riots were devastating Los Angeles, California. And he he just cried out, can't we all just get along? The answer then was no. The answer now is no. But our hope, remember, isn't in unbelievers acting like believers. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. You get close to Jesus. You use your gifts. You reach out to people. You make sure you love them. And Jesus will do the rest. Hey, thanks for your for listening, for tuning in today. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. Lord willing, I will be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.